Many of America's critical access hospitals are in geographically isolated areas, serving sparse populations far from any other hospitals or healthcare facilities. This often means that they are the sole healthcare provider for their communities, serving a broad range of patients with a broad range of healthcare needs. So, how do these critical access hospitals prioritize care designed for their unique community? With close connection, strategic prioritization, and bold leadership. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 85 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, we have talked to critical access hospital CEOs before here on Rural Health Rising, and obviously we have gained their unique perspectives uh, on providing care in smaller facilities with some special reimbursement rules. Uh, But those were in less remote areas of Michigan compared to the facility uh, that we'll be learning about here today on this episode. That's right. We are talking with someone who runs a hospital that is not only critical access, but operates in a geographically isolated community in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. That's right. Our guest today is Hunter Nostrand, Chief Executive Officer of Helen Newberry Joy Hospital in Newberry, Michigan. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Hunter. Thanks, JJ and Rachel. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. So to start, Hunter, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at what I think is the coolest sounding name of a hospital I've ever heard, <laughs> Helen Newberry Joy Hospital. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm born and raised in Michigan, uh, up the upper part of the lower peninsula, and moved to the upper peninsula about 12 years ago, um, started working at was then War Memorial Hospital, uh, made a transition over to Helen Newberry Joy, um, worked in accounting and finance uh, as a CFO, and kept piling on more hats as we do in rural, rural health care, and uh, became the COO also, and um, transitioned just before the pandemic into the CEO role. So it's been a pretty turbulent three years as my tenure as the CEO, and uh, I look forward to the opportunities we have moving forward, and work with the great team here at Helen Newberry Joy, which... Um, as you mentioned, it's a critical access hospital. Um, we're licensed for 25 beds. We're located in the center of the Eastern Upper Peninsula, so over 60 miles away from the next nearest uh, healthcare provider. We also have an attached 39-bed long-term care facility and four rural health clinics. Um, one was just a brand-new addition. You know, Rachel, uh, Hunter is a fierce advocate uh, for rural health care. In fact, Uh, Hunter and I both serve on the Michigan Hospital Association Board of Trustees, and uh, oftentimes uh, Hunter is is really uh, pegged as a guy that can you know speak on behalf of the challenges that uh, face rural hospitals. In fact, I believe Hunter, you're on a rural hospital council. Is that correct? Don't you lead that? So I was on the small rural hospital council for the MHA. Was the past chair of that. Um, I also do a lot of work with the NRHA. Um, I'm going to their fellows program and also sit on their National Health Congress for the, the country. Well, oh, that is fantastic. It's a great opportunity to work with other rural health leaders. That is fantastic. So, all right, uh, you know, we've established who you are. Um, we, we know where you've come from, uh, your dynamic background, uh, and obviously an amazing skill set that you have. But, you know, we, we want to start with the question why. And we do this on every podcast to get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, Hunter, 
What I want to know is what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? So first and foremost, um, you know, obviously the mission that we all are serving in, in healthcare in our community, especially in rural communities, is that the reliant on us as that sole provider is so heavy. And it's an honor to be able to, to serve amongst our community in that way. Um, and then I love the challenges and the innovation opportunities in rural healthcare. We're agile. We're the speedboats of, of healthcare that we can turn on a dime and try new initiatives. Oh, I love that. I'm going to steal um, that one. The speedboats of healthcare. Love it. Yeah. Um, you oppose the big, oppose the big freighters of the, the health system. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity in the rural healthcare space. Um, you know, we're just a critical need for our community. So my why is I love the diversity of healthcare that it offers. You can never know everything. Um, you have the collaboration in my background, I like athletics and working with teams a lot. So this is fits right into what I love doing is working with people to accomplish a mission beyond yourself. So those are really things that I get excited about and I look forward to doing every day. You know, Hunter, uh, let's, let's get a little background here for our listeners. So your nearest competitor would be how far away? Over 60 miles. Over 60 miles. So you really you know, from a market perspective and obviously from a from a perspective of having market control, you're setting in a pretty good space, right? I mean, 60 miles is a, is a pretty good distance when many of our community hospitals are faced with hospitals literally in their backyard. Um, that can be an advantage and also, Hunter, it can be a disadvantage too uh, when you need a tertiary center that's larger to get a patient out. Um, but, you know, let's talk a little, so, so that's, that's the nearest, you know, competitor, but let's talk a little bit about the demographics in your community. Are you, you know, what percentage of your payer mix would you guess is Medicaid, Medicare, and what's your population there? So our service area is about 10,000 people in totality amongst that, that spread there, that 65 or 60 miles away. And those other facilities aren't our tertiary center. Our tertiary center is actually over 100 miles away, wow. uh, multiple hours um, going in a different direction. Those are other critical access hospitals or one uh, referral center that's nearby. Oh, wow. Uh, so for our, our, our demographic in the UP, so yeah, the challenges, as you alluded to, you know, our, our typical rural community demographics, you know, very high concentration of Medicare, very high concentration of Medicaid. Uh, we get a lot of snowbirds that fly down south for the winter, come up. So fluctuating populations in some of the outlying communities is definitely uh, uh, something that we work through. And then just being able to find and get to the care that, you know, those individuals need with the infrastructure, whether that's broadband or roads or transportation that just aren't available for a lot of um, individuals to make it to their appointments even. So I think there's there's definitely some challenges with that. Uh, we definitely look at it from a, an opportunity to find a solution, though, as I mentioned, and, and work with our, our communities on how to best leverage the resources we have, even though at times are limited. You know, Hunter, thanks. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the nature of a critical access hospital. Some of our listeners may not, you know, be familiar with this designation. So can you help our listeners understand what does it mean? And I guess then specific to your institution, how long has your hospital been a critical access? And, and what do you see as the benefit of that transition into a critical access? Yeah. Uh, so critical access hospital means to me, it's survival of rural health care when that was adopted. Um, you know, I think the, the change in methodology to the cost-based reimbursement, which, you know, everyone facilitates as, well, okay, you get paid for every dollar you put in. And as we know, on, on this 
this call, that's not necessarily the case. You know, there's allowable costs. There's things that come out of that that um, don't make it dollar for dollar, but it does help sustain the necessary needs for the community and the critical infrastructure that we, we provide. Um, and for us, it, we were critical access, I believe in 1999, 2000, somewhere, somewhere in there. So it's been over 20 years um, that transition took place. And I think it's allowed us to exist, quite frankly. Without that, we would be... Um, in a much different position. And I know as Congress kind of continues to look at other opportunities to, again, develop new programs with the Rural Emergency Hospital, and I applaud them for that, the continual advancement of trying to help different rural communities survive, much like the Critical Access Hospital Program did, um, which, again, has been very valuable through the past uh, 20 plus years for us. So I would imagine that being the sole provider uh, for many of your patients, considering, like you said, the next closest hospital is over 60 miles away, um, you kind of have to balance, you know, it's you're the only game in town, which can be a double edged sword of you don't want your patients to feel like they maybe don't have the experience or don't have their needs met because they have no other options. Um, but you also want to, you, you know, you also benefit from the fact that um, you do know that your community is going to be loyal to you on some level. Um, and you have to balance the whole, you know, we say sometimes like we can't be all things to all people. And you have to balance that with the fact that your community has increasingly more limited options than rural communities that are not as isolated from a geographic perspective. Um, and, you know, you still want to take care of your community, their unique health conditions. So, like you said, your closest tertiary center is over 100 miles away. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So as a smaller hospital, you have finite resources. How are you able to be responsive to the wants and needs of your patients and their families? Yeah, great question. Much like you said, Rachel, we can't be all things, all people. We use the terminology, what we are going to do here, we're going to be the best at it. So we're not going to do everything, but the things we are going to do, we're going to strive to be the best at those. And uh, we typically take that approach. Um, Obviously, we try to build a robust service plan outside of that and, and meet the community needs the best of our ability. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a balancing act to be able to A, secure the, the resources needed, and then just the difficulty if, for our staff for education and competencies, if you're doing something infrequently, obviously you're not going to become as, as proficient with it. So uh, there's definitely some balance there, but we try to bring in great resources, uh, partner with other facilities in our area. So we'll do joint recruiting. You know, we'll, we'll partner with some of the other facilities around that are, again, 60 miles away. We get those physicians that are willing to come for a couple days a week in one location and move to the next and uh, really hopefully cut down that travel time for our patients. Although in the UP, we are used to traveling quite a bit to get anywhere. Um, <laughs> we try to minimize that as much as possible for, for our patients and community. Um, and then in addition to the other local, we'll call them, we call them local for us, local facilities here, uh, we try to look at some of the other tertiary centers and those that we're going to sending referrals down to that working with them to, again, build those strong partnerships so we can provide services that otherwise wouldn't be possible without their engagement. And I imagine that is also a benefit to your community because if you can 
find ways to, you know, say they're traveling for oncology to a tertiary center, but there are parts of their care that you can provide locally. We know that's a benefit even in our community um, with the, you know, a, a, a larger hospital being 45 minutes away compared to, you know, the 60 to 100 miles that, that you guys have to travel that for your patients to actually get the care that they need, you guys have to almost be that extender for the highly specialized care. Yeah, absolutely. So we do, um, the oncology is a great example. Um, you know, providing all the infusion services here, that would be routine. Uh, we have great staff that are able to do that here. Um, OB is another uh, opportunity that we look at. Um, we do the pre and postnatal care here, where the actual deliveries typically um, are done at some of the other centers that are able to handle that and have the on-call regions. Uh, we do have our occasional birth in the emergency department uh, that happens, and our ED docs and nursing staff do a great job handling that. But those are few and far between, and I know we like to try to get mom and baby to the right location before that happens. You know, Hunter, I'm uh, actually at a conference this week for healthcare, and uh, the question that has been posed to me at uh, least four times already uh, has been, you know, how is rural health going to be sustained in the future uh, with all of the challenges of nurse recruitment, retention, bonuses, uh, pay? You look then at uh, contract cost, you look at supply cost, uh, you look at, you know, how does a hospital like ours uh, become recession proof? And, you know, my answer has been, in our growth strategy. You know, we have to grow our hospital services where it makes sense. And you've done that. You know, at your hospital, you have a wide range of services uh, that you've offered. And it was very interesting to me when I learned a little bit about your hospital. You actually, I believe you're probably one of a few hospitals that are critical access that have a skilled nursing facility. Is that something you put together or could you talk to us a little bit about those wide range of services that help support your hospital and your community? Yes, we, we do have the attached long-term care facility for our, our community residents and um, been a great uh, benefit for our community. And we try to make sure that staffed as much as possible to provide that availability um, and then we've really taken a focus on a lot of the population health initiatives to really proactively trying to engage our community with their health. Uh, we've been a part of an ACO since 2016 when the AIM funding was out, the initial uh, um, tranche of that. And really invested heavily in getting engaged with our providers and, and nursing staff to, to proactively work with their their patients and really trying to bring them in for services that maintain their wellness opposed to treat their sickness. Um, we've invested a lot in our chronic care management services, really expanded that team. I'll um, start with just someone doing it part-time a few years ago. Now we're up to five individuals in that space helping to facilitate that, that management of their chronic conditions and comorbidities of, of our community. Um, in addition, recently, we've in the last year or two, we've really taken a proactive and dedicated approach to behavioral health and also um, OUD and SUD support. So we have one of our providers um, that has been really open to doing MAT, uh, medicated, uh, medication-assisted treatments in our clinic. Um, and we've been working in conjunction with our behavioral health director, bringing on a number of different social workers, partnering with collaborative care models with psychiatrists uh, in Marquette to help support some of the uh, primary care providers through the management of the behavioral health patients. So we felt that it's been a really um, 
strong service for us as far as promotion and getting out there for our, our patients in the community that really have a substantial need for um, behavioral health services and just try to um, work with them because we see a lot of times if we can get some of the behavioral health um, pieces kind of working in a positive direction, they're much more apt to jump in on their wellness and, and their proactive approach on their own health. So it's been a, it's been a really strong um, tie to our services in that way. So let's talk a little bit about behavioral health, because this is something that is an, a national issue, obviously, in healthcare. Uh, we still suffer. We have a 10-bed unit, but we still suffer from uh, patients who are boarded in our emergency department because we cannot find uh, locations for them in placement, and specifically juvenile, uh, when we look at adolescent um, needs. So, you know, I would think that you're pretty much challenged with that where you are now. And so how are you addressing that? It sounds like you put some some things into place, but how are you addressing the transport issue? Do you have the issue that we do, you know, generally speaking about a lack of uh, EMS? Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're in the same boat there. And I think, you know, maybe some of the nuances different for us is the, the transport issues. It could be a 12-hour transport to get someone downstate and also get them back up to the UP taking, you know, potentially those services offline for a substantial duration of time. And again, the EMS crews uh, work diligently, work extremely hard to staff those 911 crews and provide transport as much as possible. Uh, One thing that we actually did do from the medical control authority, which uh, I incidentally chair is we proactively had um, during the pandemic allowed the, the 911 crews to do life and limb threatening transfers. So taking the 911 crew offline and enable them to transfer those high priority patients to a facility and still be compliant with their regulations also. Um, So we did adopt that as a medical control, which seemed to give some uh, alleviation from some stress from the EMS. We haven't had to use it um, as much as we were actually anticipating, which is a great thing um, because they've been working so hard at making sure those transfers are happening in collaboration amongst the region. But uh, the times we have used it have definitely saved lives and um, our providers in the ED are very conscious of not uh, using that when it's unwarranted. And so I think that's been a very good thing from that perspective, from the behavioral health component uh, it's been tough, JJ. It's really been tough. I, I don't, I don't necessarily have an answer there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're like many others. We'll have a, a pediatric patient, especially in our ED, which is not an ideal position for them um, to get services for for weeks on end. At times, it feels like, and I, my heart goes out to the the kids and their families, and really, everyone wants to help. Um, we have a, a collaborative that we do here, and we meet periodically with our community mental health, our sheriff, MSP, the, uh, the local prosecutor, um, the judge. Everyone tries to get together because everyone's trying to solve this issue, and yeah. um, no one's got the silver bullet quite yet. Yeah, we find ourselves in the same position as well, and uh, most of our listeners have shared those stories and the pains and the reality of it. Sadly, what we know, Hunter, is that uh, patients board in our ER, it's not the proper place for them. And so, you know, I, I commend you and the work that you're doing with, you know, your team members there at your hospital, but also in your community, because it's a, it's a community approach to addressing these issues. And specifically since, you know, Michigan shut down, 
you know, their statewide hospitals, uh, you know, decades ago under the Engler administration. You know, we witnessed those patients either go into the jails or into the emergency departments. And those are not two places where those patients belong. Uh, properly medicated and returned back on their regimen, uh, they integrate well in society, and that's truly what they need. So hats off to you for trying to, you know, resolve some of those issues in your remote community as well. JJ, one quick note, too. Um, in Newberry, we actually used to have a state hospital here, which was oh. shut down oh, many wow. years ago. Yeah, it was shut down many years ago, and now is uh, a prison. But uh, that really? was a situation that happened back then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that really plagued Michigan. We actually had Senator Shirky on our podcast a few weeks ago, and he shared with us uh, the reality of what that meant for Michigan. And he himself, you know, talked about those struggles of, of trying to address that population. Uh, and, and I think I would say, Rachel, you could agree or disagree, but I think he admitted that that was maybe not our, our finest hour uh, in doing that. Yeah, and I think um, if I remember correctly, part of the the impetus for that, too, was related to some of the federal pass-through funding and how that was being appropriated and everything. So it, you know, I I think it was not, w- whether or not they had to be shut down, you know, whether there was a choice in that, there, the transition to how are we still going to care for this population obviously did not uh, go as smoothly as uh, anyone would like it to. And we still feel the effects of that today, sadly. Um and, you know, within behavioral health, there's a, a bed shortage and there's also a staffing shortage, just like there are there is in healthcare in general. Um, so when we look at that, and it's not just in, in rural, right? It's across the board that that staffing is one of the biggest challenges in healthcare. So, Hunter, what does that look like for your hospital right now and how are you working to address it? Yeah, we're, we're not immune to that up, the, up in the Upper Peninsula either. Um, have definitely had our shortages. Um, like seemed to ebb and flow a little bit. Our long-term care was was significantly impacted uh, over the past year. Um, we are seeing some of the RN shortages also for the nurses. Um, so just, it's been difficult, but what we're trying to do is, you know, stay competitive financially in the market, which, you know, most are trying to do, offering those incentives for whether that be recruitment, retention, um, you know, really trying to provide a lot of educational opportunities also. So a couple things that we put in place and some have been in place more recently. Some have been there for quite some time, but we provide a uh, actual, we have actually have a CNA school here. Um, so we yeah. can actually train our own CNAs and that's been in place for quite some time. And then uh, we started an MA school. So trying to create our own MAs and I've had a couple uh, students go through that, been successful. They've onboarded the organization and are doing very well. Um, but then in addition, uh, looking at the future pipeline is always extremely important to us. And so one of my, my main priorities, my first um, transition to the CEO was engaging with the school. Um, this was mm-hmm. uh, three or four years ago, um, talking about a CTE program, a career education program. So we've been doing that now um, for a couple of years and we're having rotations come through the organization here in the upcoming semester. So we're excited about that. And then with the help of um, our scholarship committee of our board, we've really made a much more robust scholarship program here. So it used to be kind of by donation, people would get to the program. And now we're really um, dedicating full fundraisers to it. We're contributing matching funds from the hospital wow. and putting um, students through the, the four years and giving them a payment every year 
as they move forward. And then they're also going to be engaged with our departmental leaders too, to try to bring them back to the communities where they came from in that rural space. So uh, we're excited about that. You know, that's just a couple years in it. So it's kind of in its infancy, but um, look forward to how that hopefully will drive some of those great students we have back into our community. When you look at your community's economy overall, how, um, what are some of the other kind of bigger industries or employers within your community and how, how do you guys, um, you know, uh, where do you stand uh, as the hospital in terms of are you one of the largest employers? Are you the largest employer? What are those other industries? Because I think part of that process of building your talent pipeline from your local population is how are, how do you um, inspire them to want to go into healthcare as opposed to the other available industries in your community? Yep. So we, we are the largest employer, um, if you look at it from the, not the state of Michigan that's here, because we do have the prison in, in town that uh, is probably the, close to the next largest. And we also have a, a manufacturing plant called Louisiana Pacific LP that's in town also. But we would be the largest employer in our community and um, you're right. It is difficult, especially over the past few years. It's been a difficult time to recruit people into healthcare too, with the pandemic, right. uh, the rules, the staffing challenges. So, being very careful with our messaging as we move forward, and and JJ can attest to this. We have a lot of strategic conversation about these things for the state. Um, to make sure our messaging is appropriate because we want to um, encourage people to come in and proactively talk about all the things we're doing to make healthcare a better space for people to be more um, appeal to go into it and you know again create that future pipeline because if we don't start doing that now the problem's not going to get solved it's going to get worse in in the future but to try to do that our locally in our community it's like i mentioned using the cte program offering that job shadowing um engaging with those college students to try to bring them back to the their community where they came from and, and have that deeper mission to serve where they were brought up and i think mm-hmm. there's some opportunity there and we're looking to hopefully leverage some of that you know, Hunter, uh, what's your uh, vacancy rate look like uh, as a comparison, you know, that we can give to our listeners? For um, total or just uh, RNs or what we... Yeah, your, your, yeah, your, your overall uh, vacancy. You know, we're, we're probably um, in the 15%, somewhere in there, 10 to 15%. It really varies widely by position. Um you know, I guess if you look at it too, we've also reduced some of our, our occupancy for like our long-term care, for instance. We, we have a lot more capacity for more residents, but because of the staff shortages, we've actually reduced that down. Um, so it just really depends how you look at it there. But uh, it's a constant challenge, JJ, and we're you know definitely not turning anyone away. We're trying to create our own as much as possible. So the reason I asked that question is it's a lead-in question for me, uh, is that when I share the challenges of staffing and very, it's hyper-competitive in my area, just, you know, 35 uh, minutes up the road is, you know, $30,000 sign-on bonuses, you know, and just just some things that I could never compete with. Um, even if I could, uh, when we look at it from a hospital system perspective and, you know, looking at the fairness doctrine here, uh, we look at, you know, 650 employees who have been dedicated and working here, you know, through the pandemic, uh, giving their all, dedicated, hardworking. It's really hard to overlook them uh, in retention 
to try to put all my effort toward recruitment. But the reason I ask that question is, you know, that's what's plaguing our hospitals today, and it's leading to closures. True story. Um, Hunter, I was at a meeting with you and some of our colleagues, um, and I heard around the table, yep, we had to shut half of our SNF down. We had to shut half of this unit down, and we, we suffered. At Hillsdale Hospital, we have about 37 skilled nursing facility beds, and there was a period I in one of the units I had to drop to 10 maximum, and uh, where I would normally have 18 in there. And that was strictly because of staffing. It was not going to be a safe environment for staffing. And so our biggest challenge that we face is in this hyper-competitive market, not only in healthcare, but also the gas station that's paying $19 an hour. Uh, and the challenges of me paying, you know, a Cena less than that. And the challenge of environmental services, you know, with a 40% occupancy in environmental services because they can work at a distribution center making $25 an hour. And so we're no longer competing, in my mind, in the healthcare industry. Um, we're competing in, in just the regular job market. But the reason I ask the question is, even at events like I'm at today, the conversation quickly changes to, well, we can solve that, JJ. Okay, I'm listening. Well, just merge and let our system buy you. Swear to goodness. These are statements that I've heard repeatedly. These are presentations that my board has received uh, historically before I took over as the CEO. And I'm thinking you're a little bit like me. You believe in independence, um, but it comes with some safeguarding. Can you explain that relationship, Hunter, about partnerships and, and relationships versus someone just telling Hunter, you're going to merge and you're going to be acquired. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you sustain that at your hospital? Absolutely. So our board is, is very, um, you know, has a good forethought of they, they want to remain independent, right? They want to be there for the community and have that local control as, the, as community stakeholders, uh, which is extremely important for myself and our board and our entire organization and community um, as we move outward. But uh, there's opportunity absolutely to partner with other agencies and they don't always have to look like a merger or an acquisition or affiliation. You know, whether you partner with, um, you know, your local law enforcement to help provide security, you partner with um, you know, many other agencies out there with the community mental health that we're always kind of working on those relationships. And when it comes to the larger health systems, there's ways to um, leverage those relationships to get community needs. That's a, a mutually beneficial arrangement. Um, so you know, we're, we're looking to transition as an accomplishment into a new EMR here. Actually, we go live in three days. <laughs> so we're, oh, we're pretty wow. excited about that. Wow. And you yeah. made time for us. Wow. I feel very honored right now. We're special. Yeah. Because I remember those days and it's, it's tough. So we're, we're getting ready for that, um, moving into Epic. And, you know, we've had a great partner with that. My Michigan Health has uh, um, worked with us closely on that and providing us support through that uh, transition. And we're very fortunate for that. And so there will always have to be mergers or affiliations. I think finding the right partner that wants to work with you for the benefit of your community and, and really work is we're all competing, you know, whether that's more direct competitors, or we all are competing for that one nurse or that one uh, doctor that's out there that's willing to serve our areas. As I kind of alluded to before, 
up here in the UP, we got to partner together to survive. If we don't, um, we're trying to compete over one doctor and try to employ them full time when the services aren't needed. It's, it's really detrimental to uh, both of us in, in that respect. So I think there's just a natural collaboration that takes place up here. Um, and we've got a lot of great partners and a lot of other great CEOs in the past that have been able to, to work with, alongside of and partner with. And I know that uh, there's a lot of financial pressures right now, but I think as uh, Rachel alluded to, it's, it's not just rural hospitals either. There's the large systems are, are having the same pressures and they're having the same increases. Yes. So I don't think Which by we've learning, had in rural for years. So, you know, I, part of me years. wants to say, welcome to that. the club. Now you know how it feels. You know what I mean? <laughs> because, you know, there is sometimes that attitude that is like, oh, look at them with their rural hospital. That's so cute, you know. But I think it's, you know, it adds some perspective of like, this is what we've been dealing with for decades. And we've been trying to figure out, you know, what are the ways to, to fix it and sustain it? Absolutely. The, the razor thin margins are a real thing. You know, um, rural healthcare and healthcare in general right now go across the board is very fragile. You know, there one one chink in the armor can really hurt those uh, other organizations. And, you know, that's why I think we need to partner together. They rely upon us for the referrals to keep those, those volumes up there. We rely on them to take care of our patients. So it is truly a collective partnership across. And as we're all struggling with the same challenges, you know, meeting of the minds, coming together, um, seeing unique ways that we can pivot. And again, like I said, the speedboat analogy, can we trial something that could potentially work um, at a larger scale? Could we be the pilots for things that could really drive improvement and innovation throughout the state and country? Yeah, and you're doing that, Hunter, and, and I'm just going to challenge you to keep it up. Uh, I believe the success, I know the success of your hospital in a time in which over 140 hospitals have closed in America. And uh, as we had Scott Becker on this very podcast explaining uh, that hundreds of other hospitals are at risk over the next year, uh, what you're doing at your hospital and for your community is, you know, in my perspective, and I'm not being tongue-in-cheek here, it's God's work. Uh, it's mission work, uh, and we're saving lives uh, that otherwise uh, would probably end up with far uh, you know, greater complications and worse outcomes if our community hospitals weren't present, given transportation challenges, transport, and those things. So, all right, so we've obviously established, you know, the, the, the great things uh, that, you know, your hospital has, has been able to do in your growth strategy. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about some maybe some just specific achievements that you're most proud of uh, post pandemic, you know, and uh, maybe even during the pandemic. Maybe it was just in spite of the pandemic, whatever it is. Um, what, what do you think has been the biggest win for you that's impacted your team and your community that is a CEO that you're just sitting there going, you know, I'm pretty excited and proud about that, that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, I'll, uh, I guess I'll refer back to the epic transition. We've been working on that for well over a year now and taking a lot of time and commitment from our, our team. And uh, we're really excited about that. There's um, a hopeful of a lot of improvements from efficiencies there. Um, but in addition to that, uh, we did actually expand to a new rural health clinic and rebuilt uh, an existing one that was well overdue of needing an infrastructure uh, improvement. So I uh, did that through the pandemic, you know, was able to secure USDA funding, uh, partner with the USDA along those lines, uh, a lot of engagement from our facilities and finance and our, our clinic team. 
And um, we had a whole remodeling of the kind of our, our board got involved with external and internal design work. And so that was a great um, experience to work through that with our teams here. And we did that in spite of the pandemic, got through that, got that all actually released in the past year. So we're, we're happy about that. Um, excited to provide a new location closer to their homes for our communities we serve. That is fantastic, Hunter. And uh, the work that you're doing, again, I, I want to thank you for being a voice for rural health uh, in Michigan. And uh, obviously, with your work at the National Rural Health Association, your voice uh, at the national level uh, is critical to share, you know, the important stories about how rural hospitals are challenged and how we're, you know, stepping up to some of these challenges to sustain our hospitals. So uh, on behalf of our hospital to you for your work, which never ends because we're always in advocacy mode, uh, I want to say thank you. And and I want to thank you for joining us today to give, you know, such a unique perspective about, you know, what your hospital status means, how you've weathered all of these uh, storms, and really an exciting time for you in healthcare as you're building these programs, impacting, you know, lives in your community, training them, educating them. And then as one of the largest employers, uh, the contributions you make back to your community. Just think, Hunter, what would happen if our rural communities like yours and mine would experience a closure of our hospitals? Those rural communities would have no economic development. And I think you would agree with that. So the linkage between the two is just incredible. And I think if anyone gets it, uh, it's rural CEOs. When we start talking to the rural CEO about uh, the link and the relationship between economic development, community engagement, uh, and your rural hospital, we've got to be in partnership with each other. And I think you find that probably to be the case uh, where you are. Absolutely. There is a, a direct tie there. And um, I actually sit on our EDC board because of that. You know, we try to be engaged with whatever we can do to promote the growth of our community is um, something we're all bought into. My board's bought into it. Uh, one example, I'll, I'll give you a kind of a pandemic kind of celebration too. So during the pandemic, you know, the initial, all the restaurants kind of shut down, right? They're all closed. They weren't able to operate. Um, we were obviously continuing to operate here. And what we wanted to do, we wanted to engage with our community. So we coordinated a call with all the, the restaurants around the area and in town. And every single day, we catered food. The employees bought food from our local restaurants so they could um, still produce a margin and still have some service and keep their staff employed. So we did that rotating through for well over um, you know, six months, if not more, through that time until they were able to open back up. So that was something we really thought was a, a great thing to help that engagement and the economic driver as we are to give back to our community that we were fortunate to be working through that time when a lot of things were getting shut down. Absolutely. Well, believe it or not, Hunter, time has come to a very quick close. And I want to thank you again for uh, joining us here on Rural Health Rising and for sharing your unique perspective. Uh, and I want to I want to just continue to ask that you advocate for us. Uh, and I know that our listeners would appreciate the work that you're doing and your continued work. So thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, Rachel. Appreciate it. Great conversation. And Look forward to continue the work that we all do. And thank you for everything that you do and supporting this podcast and getting our message out. And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, Hunter, 
what is your most, and you're probably going to have the best one ever because you're <laughs> in a very rural area, all right? So what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? And we've heard a lot. We've heard about cow tipping and we've heard about, you know, walking up to houses with roosters and all kinds of stuff. But let, let's have a little bit of perspective from what's happening up north. Maybe I'll go with a little um, more of a heartwarming story that I really, really like. Um, so there was uh, a young special needs girl that actually got lost in the woods up here. Oh, and, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I read that. It, I read it, that. It, it was absolutely astonishing of the community support that took place. There was hundreds of people gathering um, like a command center there. There were people delivering food, water. Um, they were combing through hundreds and hundreds of acres of land for hours and hours and hours. It was pretty moving to see how much the community rallies together. And I think that's just a, a direct illustration of what we experience here in rural, just that, that ties to your neighbor in those things that we do for each other um, was, was really amazing to see. So uh, not so much of a, a funny ha-ha uh, type of story, but a fun story in the fact that it really, um, you, if you could see the scene, it was, it was very moving to see everyone band together, everyone come out and luckily find the, the young girl and everything was all, all in well. But um, very scary for the family, but very moving to see the, the support that was given throughout the many communities. Wow, that's awesome. Well, you know what? I don't know if anyone can top that story. Uh, and it does speak to the uniqueness of local community. And everything that we do, Hunter, as you know, is driven back to local community. Uh, and certainly without our community supporting us, trusting us with their health care, we wouldn't exist. So you know, I'm sure just like you, uh, you know, our thanks go out to our community for entrusting us to take care of them uh, at their hour of need and then for all of their care. So uh, small hospitals like ours. Uh, still have a very impactful place in our community. So thanks for joining us again. Thanks, guys. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.